When I've worked on on theater productions where people have said, oh, what if we film the whole rehearsal process? What if we make a documentary of, of this entire production? And I look at them and think, are you out of your mind? The idea of recording every moment and every mistake and of making sure that no one gets to fail privately is absolutely obscene. You know, that's a good way to make people freeze and and not try anything new, not try something that's not going to work, but will be a step towards something uh, that just might. That if you, if you eliminate privacy, it's it's really crippling. Although, actually, and I did just read something where it said we are, should avoid the word crippling because that also could be an insult to, to the disabled community, which is something that I've actually then thought about. But of course, I just used the word anyway. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest, playwright, novelist, and screenwriter Paul Rudnick is one of the most celebrated humorists of his generation. From his 1993 breakout off-Broadway hit play, Jeffrey, which was groundbreaking in that it managed to be a comedy about the AIDS crisis, to Broadway hits like I Hate Hamlet, screenplays for films like In and Out, Adam's Family Values, and Sister Act, Paul is a master of not just the quippy one-liner, but also deeply realized characters and relatable, if often absurd, situations. He's also been a regular contributor to The New Yorker for decades and is the author of several books, most recently the novel Playing the Palace, which is about a gay relationship between a young New York party planner and an imagined version of the Prince of Wales. Paul spoke with me about gay subject matter in his work over time, his fascination with the British royal family, his latest project for HBO, and his feelings about the ever-shifting battle lines of the new culture wars. We also talked about growing up in New Jersey, which, let's face it, is its own kind of culture war. Paul Rudnick, welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So at the risk of being a real fangirl and embarrassing possibly both of us, I just I have to open up by telling you that I will never forget picking up your novel, Social Disease, in my New Jersey town library in 1986. Is that when that novel came out? That sounds very possible. <laughs> okay. So I was probably about 16. And I have to tell you, that book changed the way I thought about writing, even reading. Ooh. I Yeah, I, I guess I knew what satire was. We'd probably been assigned Mark Twain, but I don't think I'd ever read a satirical novel. And given that the opening paragraphs were about people from New Jersey waiting to get into a club in Manhattan, <laughs> it felt both familiar and exotic. And uh, so I just want to tell you that I remember checking out of the library and reading it and being like, oh my God, you can, you can write this way. Like it's really fun and funny, but also sophisticated. So anyway, thank you for that. You grew up also in New Jersey in Piscataway, not too far away. And that town has played a big part in your work. So I'm curious, what books were you picking up at the local Piscataway library when you were 16? And what was making you excited about reading and writing? Well, actually, my first job when I was 12 or 13 was in the Piscataway Public Library. Oh, 
because I come from a family where there are lots of librarians. And so books were, you know, highly valued. And so, and I also, my parents wanted to teach me the value of a dollar. So I had to get a job very early on, which mostly taught me I never wanted to have a job again. But I loved working at the library because I would be shelving books on the little cart and I would wheel it into some far dark corner and just sit on the floor and read. And the librarians were amazingly tolerant. And what I remember reading, it's interesting you bring up um, satire because that was what I gravitated towards. I read my way through all of Patrick Dennis, who most people know from Auntie Mame, but he wrote a whole shelf full of other amazing books that were all bestsellers at the time. Things like Genius and How Firm a Foundation and a, a sort of an early graphic novel, oddly called Little Me. Um, and there was a writer called Max Schulman who wrote also satiric comic novels about sex and life in suburbia. And I was so young that I didn't catch everything. I do remember at the same time I read, um, my brother had a, a softcore porn paperback, which used a lot of euphemisms about swords and caverns. And because I was so young, I took it all very literally. So I really thought someone was plunging a sword into a cavern, which didn't seem particularly effective. And it was only years later where I realized, oh, I get what was going on then. So it was all wildly inappropriate literature for a kid, but I just devoured it. I think that was a time when when the youngest people still yearned for sophistication and adulthood. You know, there wasn't the cult of youth that developed um, very quickly from then. But yeah, I and I was also... I loved being at that age. It's sort of when you have no taste, you'll just read anything. (laughs) Um, I also had the same experience. My parents would take me to the theater. And on my birthday every year, I'd be allowed to choose a show. And I had unvaryingly god-awful instincts that I'd pick the worst bombs. And I didn't care because if it was a musical and there was a red velvet curtain and there was dancing, I was just in heaven. So it was, I don't remember when I crossed that line to, you know, sneering condescension. <laughs> quick, but, um, I feel like you might have been precocious. Exactly. That, exactly. that was another dream. But yeah, so when I went, so the earliest books I remember were, yeah, were sort of novels of urban and suburban depravity. And did you feel like you were living in suburban depravity? What was your relationship to suburbia itself when you were a kid? You just didn't know any different, probably. No, I didn't, although I was aware that I was coddled to a certain degree, that the suburbs were pretty much created for the raising and worship of children. You know, that I was the focus. And once my brother and I were out of uh, college, or a little bit older, my parents immediately moved to Philadelphia, which was a very wise move to go someplace (laughs) that wasn't all swing sets and PTA meetings. So it was very comfortable, you know, and it was restrictive in certain ways in that people weren't the most imaginative. But on the other hand, Piscataway was weirdly tolerant, often out of ignorance. We were one of the only Jewish families, and I was probably one of the very few gay kids. And it didn't really register because Jews and gay people were so unheard of that they weren't discriminated against to a huge degree. People were far busier, you know, opposing black people and in certain neighborhoods, Italian people. So I was kind of let off the hook. So it was, um, 
it was a very cozy childhood in a lot of ways. As I got every year, I would become more aware of who in the neighborhood you know, was an alcoholic or a drug addict or a schizophrenic. And the fact that I think at least three people on my block committed suicide. But again, that seemed pretty par for the course in New Jersey, where everyone was pretty accepting of of just about everything. It was, um, there was a, a helpful lack of snobbery. You did write that New Jersey's officially recognized state hobbies are scarfing, barely thawed frozen snacks and masturbating. So- And we are great at all those things. All those things. Both of those things. Anyway, yeah. So how did you get to New York? Were were you, uh, did you get on the the bus and get out of Port Authority and meet all your best friends like Fran Leibowitz did? (laughs) Well, I I mean, I first went to college. I went to Yale. So I went to New Haven, which is, um, was a great sort of preparation for New York because it was, again, there was a safety factor because you were in a walled community. Uh, But there were people there who not only intended to move to New York ultimately, but who were set on making genuine careers in the theater, especially. And that was new. That was a real education, that it was possible. That was, there was, I was an undergraduate, but in the, um, which was a very small drama major, but the graduate school, which remains very illustrious. You know, I met people like Wendy Wasserstein and the wonderful costume designer, William Ivy Long, and Chris Rang, another terrific playwright, was there. So for the first time in my life, I had examples. I thought, okay, let's pay attention and see how this is done. I would say, luckily, the financial aspects were far simpler back then, that the the rents were much lower, the points of entry were both defined and just a little simpler than they are now. Um, But so those years were kind of about personality building and saying, okay, how do I ready myself for my ultimate New York life? And then I got on the bus or the train, and, and also there was a lot of constant transportation, that New York was not forbidden. Um, and my parents were probably by default pretty trusting so that the the Port Authority didn't hold any real terror. Although actually, once I got to New York, it was at a real down point. You know, that was the, the Ford to New York drop dead period. Yeah. So, and that was oddly lucky because it also keeps things manageable. Right. Um, and, you know, I mean, you could get it to sort of nostalgia porn, where if you, if I told you what I paid for an apartment in the West Village back then, you would hate me. I would hate me. Um, but how but many it was times did you get that marked? you actually could wait and choose your apartment? You know, even <laughs> though it was a studio and a fifth, fifth floor walk up where the ceiling eventually collapsed because there was so much snow on the roof, but it was still a sense of real welcome and even equality. That idea that, yep, New York was for anyone who really was desperate to be there. So you've had an amazing career. You're a playwright, you're a screenwriter, you've written for magazines, you've written novels. What how, what genre did you start in? Did you want to be a playwright? Were you a theater person? Oh, yeah. I was a complete theater rat. I grew up in community theater and summer stock and all of that. That was my dream. I think my mom had a some sort of odd... Um, essay from when I was like seven or eight years old in which I announced that I intended to be a playwright, which was odd since I had never seen a play at that point. It just sounded so good. 
So that was always the dream and it pretty much remained. So, I mean, that was where I lived and that was where I just had the, the time of my life. So everything else became um, a kind of fearful exploration, which was, I was always very daunted by the idea of writing novels because you had to fill the entire page. You know, with a a play, you're just, there's a lot more white space. And screenwriting beyond that was a gift and a very helpful racket, as every playwright knows. That's how you pay for your theater habit is by writing for TV or movies. So it's, uh, you know, it's a system that you can try to take advantage of. But it was one of the few lessons I eventually learned was to let myself be surprised that rather than formulating some master plan or or outline for the next six minutes, six years, whatever, to see what was out there, what was offered, what was possible, um, that was much healthier and kept me far more sane. But theater was always the dream. And it was, um, yeah, I mean, it took many years because I went through the whole having lots of readings in basements, having, you know, de- the development process, which can be quite deadly in every form, before I finally found any sort of a voice, let alone an actual production. And even then, well, I mean, my earliest play was, it was something called Poor Little Lambs, which was given the most spectacular first production by a director named Jack Hofsis, who had just won the Tony for directing The Elephant Man on Broadway. And we had a cast with lots of people getting an early break. Kevin Bacon was in it, uh, Bronson Pinchot, Blanche Baker, uh, David Naughton, all sorts of people. And they were great. So I realized, okay, if there are any problems here, it is entirely my fault. And there were problems. And it was that sort of very necessary, very hard slap where you realize, okay, if you want this for real, you know, if this is going to be your life, you have to get much, much better. And and that, again, took another period of years before I could figure out even the rudiments of how, how playwriting worked. Well, you were also taking certain risks. You came to the city, you started your career at really the peak of the AIDS crisis, and you were writing about gay themes and about the AIDS crisis with humor. And that, I can imagine, um, was surprising to some people, if not um, considered verboten. So how did that all kind of come about? Oh, yeah. That's, I was just going to use that, that word, verboten, because it was those were overwhelmingly tragic times and weirdly exciting as well, because it was one of the few moments when theater had become essential, because the AIDS crisis was being so ignored, not just by the government, but by the media as well. There was very little coverage. So when I went to see The Normal Heart and its original production at the public theater, where the statistics for the infected and the dead were scrawled on the set itself and updated at every performance, it was overwhelming and shocking. And it was also a wildly entertaining play. But it was very necessary as a mere source of information. I mean, you could feel it in the audience that people were not getting this message anywhere else. So there was this real climate of theater as becoming essential. And when I wrote Jeffrey, I I mean, I was a comic writer, so I had no idea if I had any place in this particular crisis and this overwhelming tragedy. But that was how I worked. And I thought, okay, I knew, well, there actually, I remember the moment that inspired the play was when a friend and I went to visit someone who was dying in the hospital. And he was, 
you know, had been a wonderful, elegant, funny guy who was, had been reduced to barely skeletal. But he was also still insanely demanding. He, we had to bring him exactly the right Italian vogue. We had to supply the right imported sodas. We had to find the exact photograph of Anne Margaret that he remembered. So after we visited him and he harangued us, you know, with his last breaths practically, we sat on a bench in front of the hospital. And my friend said to me, You know, I adore Eric and I will do anything for him but I really want to kill him. And we both started laughing because that was all you could do. It was so insane. But I realized that that wit was one of the few weapons that the, the community at that time had. There were no treatments. There was no attention being paid. So I really wanted to salute that particular gay sense of humor. And so when, after I wrote Jeffrey, it was turned down by every theater in New York, every theater anywhere else in the country, usually without a word or or a letter once in a while, some artistic director would say, Oh, well, I enjoyed this, but our subscribers would never stand for it. Um, so it was, and that went on for, for a period of a couple of years as we were having readings. I had the wonderful director, Chris Ashley, who I worked with many times. Um, but that was our first collaboration. And finally, I had this wonderful German agent named Helen Merrill, who'd been in America for, for 40 years and had only gotten more sort of Frau Blucher Teutonic. She marched the play over to a very small theater called the WPA on 23rd Street, which was pretty much a one-man band run by this great guy named Kyle Rennick. And she handed him the manuscript and said, I'm not leaving until you read this. And Kyle, being afraid of Helen, sat down and read it and said, I may regret this, but I want to do it. And I was so just astonishingly grateful for that opportunity. And when we tried to cast the play, there were the same objections. Every agent and manager in town warned their clients away from it. They said, if you even audition for this play, your career will be over. And, and what was the problem people. with it? Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but just Jeffrey is about a gay man who decides he's going to be celibate and then falls in love with somebody. Is that that's the plot? That's what the play is about, right? Oh, just very much on, so. On the about sort of that that culture of fear that was so yeah. Um, yeah, everywhere at that but time. But you were also making fun of it. So what was the problem? Why did they say it would ruin your career if you were in it? Because it was about homosexuality and AIDS itself or because it was kind of poking fun at the edges? Both, because it was seen as a comedy about AIDS, which sounded unthinkable. Okay. And because it also, because it had sort of shifted the paradigm. The gay characters weren't the best friends. There was no straight character who was the way into the material. There was no hand-holding. So it was seriously gay. Um, and comically gay. And that was still very new at that point. So there were, and it was very sexual as well, which was considered quite dangerous in those days and even today. Um, so yeah, there were objections across the board, which was why the cast that we ended up with, I was so grateful to them because not only were they just magnificent actors, they didn't give a fuck, you know, that they really said no we are part of this community. Anyone who's in the theater was experiencing death on a, an illness on a daily basis. So they were just superb. And what I, one of the most gratifying things when the play ended up becoming this improbable success was that that cast couldn't stop working. They were all suddenly getting movie and TV offers. There were, because Jeffrey, the original Jeffrey was John Michael Higgins, who people know from countless movies from the Pitch Perfect movies, from the Christopher Guest movies. Harriet Harris was in it, who I just adore. 
uh, Tom Hewitt, all sorts of people who just were delivered like crazy on, on every level. And there even that first production, there was a sense of, no, this is beyond a play. This is something we're all in together. And I, the first preview, for some insane reason, was on New Year's Eve of in between 1992 and 93. And I had never been that nervous because I did not know if people would be willing to laugh at this material. And my parents, for some, or not my parents, my mom had insisted on being there for, for some particularly mad reason. And she was so nervous, too. Her shoulders were just up near her ears. And as the play went on, you could feel the audience warming to the material and realizing, no, these were their lives being reflected on stage. And the laughter just became nonstop. There was a moment when a character announced that he was HIV positive, and there was suddenly this silence as if, no, this could never be a comedy after this point. And then two seconds later, a character who was a chorus boy in Cats, entered in his Cats outfit, swinging his tail, <laughs> and he was HIV positive as well, and hilariously funny. And you realize, okay, all bets were off, and the audience was just completely in. So it was um, it was a very wild experience, but I just, I thought, okay, this is whatever anyone thinks of it, this is what I should be doing right now. You went on to write a lot of very popular, well-received plays. I Hate Hamlet, The Naked Eye, The Most Fabulous Story Ever Told. Um, but for now, let's let's fast forward 30 years, I guess. And speaking of stories that are really totally gay, as, as you would say, <laughs> your new novel, Playing the Palace, is a gay romance between two almost 30-year-old men, one of whom is the Prince of Wales, uh, in line to be the King of England. So uh, very, very realistic. I'm assuming you've taken this from... Uh, <laughs> from life. From life. Uh, tell us tell us how you uh, seized upon this idea and uh, what you did with it. Well, weirdly, I've been fooling around with a royal idea for many years. One of the earliest um, impulses came from... I don't know if you remember that time when there was a guy, an interloper, who climbed the fence of Buckingham Palace and was discovered sitting on the bed in the Queen's bedroom. And he and Queen Elizabeth had a conversation. This was, you know, no. long before security became all important. But I remember thinking that, my God, people have access to the royal family in ways I couldn't imagine. And so I was never sure if this should be a play or a screenplay or where it should land. And then a couple of years ago, once I thought of the main character of Carter Ogden, who's this um, associate event architect, which means he's a party planner, and he lives in Hell's Kitchen with roommates. And I thought, okay, this should be told through his voice, because I thought, what if this guy, who's also just been dumped numerous times, actually could somehow encounter the crown prince? which is possible in New York, where such collisions are every day, and they meet up at an event at the United Nations. But I thought, no, I really wanted it through this particular lens. So, And I've just been a royalty addict, like, like so many others, for no reason I can discern. Um, although this morning I came across one of my favorite new headlines online, which said, and it said with great urgency, who is Rose Hanbury, the Marchioness of Chal of Chalmondeley, 
who may be having an affair with Prince William. And I thought, yep, that's the, that's the world I wanted playing the palace to live in, this sense of the great royal soap opera, only with gay characters at the center, because one of the rules I'd set myself early on in, in my career was that I didn't want to write stories of gay trauma, uh, which are essential and true. But I thought not. I thought you need some balance there. I wanted to explore a certain kind of gay happiness, and it was, and which meant no more uh, tragic coming out stories, no more tales where the one of the lead characters gets killed with a crowbar at the final moment. Um, so playing the palace just was a, an opportunity for romantic escape. I just thought, no, this is a place I want to go. And during the um, the lockdown. At the end, last fall before the election, I was we were filming a script I wrote for HBO called Coastal Elites, which was just this cry of rage and total panic over what might be upon us. And it was thrilling to be able to to um, to see that realized with a with by this terrific director Jay Roach and with a cast that was Bette Midler and Dan Levy and Issa Rae, all sorts of great people. But it was all about the most passionate, upsetting, um, agonizing, emotional world. So then when I got to edit the galleys of playing the palace, it was just the most blessed relief. I thought, yes, now I need dessert. So, um, so playing the palace was just a kind of romantic dream for me. And I loved it. And I loved exploring the, the ideas of scrutiny, especially that nowadays any romance at any level um, exists online. You are criticized, you are judged, there are comments. But if you are a royal, if you are Meghan and Harry, oh my God, the jury is, is in place 24-7. And I thought, what would that be like? How could you dare to get involved with any other person knowing what you were in for? Um, so that was, that was the, the sort of really contemporary starting point for playing the palace. And this is a very contemporary story, or maybe even a kind of overly idealistic story in that the fact that the prince is gay is really beside the point. He's been accepted by his family. Uh, he's essentially been raised by his grandmother. This is a, you've, you have fictionalized this particular royal family uh, to, to a large extent. This is not Queen Elizabeth. This is a queen by a different no, name. Inspirations, her name is, but yeah. Yes, her name's Queen Catherine. Uh, and so he's, yes, this is a kind of uh, JFK Jr. figure. Uh, you know, he's very much, you know, he's, a, he's an eligible bachelor, but he's openly gay. Uh, and he runs into this, uh, the uh, Carter Ogden, the, the event planner in New York, and they have this in incredible romance. And really their biggest problem is that Carter is just, not able to keep up with the public relations program uh, in the way that he needs to. The the gayness is kind of like an afterthought. Is that is that accurate? Oh yeah, absolutely. Part? Well, one thing that's always fascinated me are there are very few jobs in the world with total job security where you really can't be fired. It comes down to pretty much the Pope, a Supreme Court justice, or royalty. That even though there are protocols in place for getting rid of any of these people, they're rarely used. So I thought if you were, I wanted to also write about a powerful gay figure, someone with genuine authority in the world. And I thought an openly gay prince who just insists on it, who says, I am going to trust the acceptance of my country and the world beyond that. 
so that, but on the other hand, I wanted to make sure I included the responsibility of that figure because I thought whoever is the first out gay royal is going to experience a, a scrutiny like no other because he will be, he will need to honor his family and the crown, but also LGBTQ people everywhere who will be accusing him of being gay in the wrong way, of not being gay enough, of being too gay, of not serving every L, every letter of the the gay alphabet. And I thought that will not be easy. On one hand, you don't want to feel any particular pity for someone of that wealth and privilege. But it's I always remember there's a line, I think it's actually from the Philadelphia story, and it may have been totally invented, but it was presented as a proverb that with the rich and famous, always a little patience. And that's something I enjoyed with this book, that sense of, okay, you know, take the royals seriously mock them at the same time, but enjoy them rather than condemning them out of hand as this relic and as this danger to democracy. You know, and you also do something that I thought was really brave. You write about very young characters and, you know, you're not so young yourself anymore. I'm afraid, I'm afraid to write about, I would be afraid to write like a fiction featuring very, very young people, because I don't think I could get it right. Like the TikTok videos and the Instagram and just the sort of the the world that they inhabit is so dramatically different than the ones you and I grew up in. Neither of us have kids, for example. So how did you kind of get into that world and, you know, achieve and attain some measure of verisimilitude? Well, I think one of the advantages of being older is that you have this longer time span to draw on that I've been young. I think sometimes young writers, sometimes if they're writing about older characters, it's a little bit more of an educated guess. But I certainly knew what it was like to be young in New York and yearning and broke and um, and, and ha- experiencing constant doubt on every level, and on the romantic level, on the career level, so that I could draw on that. And I thought, no, if I were writing more specifically about this exact moment, yeah, I would either have to do an enormous amount of research that would become all too obvious, um, or I should leave it to to younger writers. But somehow this felt appropriate, especially because there was a certain level of fantasy, also because I know an enormous amount of young people who are in a very traditional position in ways that kids who move to New York, whenever you are 19, 20, 21, and suddenly you find yourself whether it is in Hell's Kitchen or Bushwick or Williamsburg, and all you want is to make your way in the world, that's a little eternal. And that was something I felt confident of. And I'm sometimes shocked at how similar the life experiences are that you are making the same mistakes. And so and on the other hand, that's lucky, I think, thanks to the internet, we all absorb an awful lot of social information without having to sit down and plod through research. We just know what that feels like. Everyone's got a phone now. You know that it's, um, some of it just felt natural. And beyond that, I also decided I was not going to worry it to death, that I would not constantly think, oh my God, is this what a real young person would do? Or (laughs) what will actual young people think of this? I thought, no, these are characters. These are emanations of my particular brain. Let's see what happens. 
but yeah, it's daunting. And I think it's, yeah, it's just, it's also different from writing, you know, an episode of Girls or an episode of Euphoria or, you know, things that are actual mirrors of where we are right now at a very young age. Well, you do have the roommate character who's sort of a social justice activist type. And um, she's a she's a feminist. She lesbian? I can't remember. I think yes, so. Yes, she but, is. Okay, of course. Okay, good. So she so <laughs> she has plenty of uh, uh, criticisms of the, the royals and just the whole sort of uh, e- economic social uh, structure of their, the place that they occupy in the public imagination. She's got a critique. She's got an intersectionalist critique. Let's just put it that way. So was that a deliberate, uh, why did you put her in the story? Were you just having fun with that? Or did you think that was an important counterpoint? Oh yeah. Cause I pretty much agree with everything she says. I think uh-huh. that, the objections to the Royal family and the call for the, uh, their removal are totally legitimate. It's ridiculous that we still have Royals anywhere on the other hand, my more romantic nature adores them. But I did want to have a completely credible spokesperson for the other side and someone who would say, what the hell are you doing? These people are ridiculous. It's a ridiculous life. It's a life completely out of touch with reality and designed to be that way. Um, so yeah, so I didn't want to use her only for to uh, as sort of a, a cheap kind of satire, but more as a sense of a voice of sanity. You know, and I love that she, the way she ultimately gets woven into the story. And I love also sort of tricking characters like that into a certain surrender after a point that there is a, a, an appeal and a, a, a sort of uh, entertainment value to the royal family that's pretty much irresistible. So even Louise some finds herself vulnerable to that at, at a certain point with all of her caveats in place. But yeah, I certainly needed the loyal opposition, you know, and that she's somebody, I think everyone in the story is looking out for their, um, their, their playing piece that you've got Carter's friends are protective of his life and Prince Edgar's grandmother and his brother and other people in his life are looking after his interests so that you've got teams, um, who aren't always wrong and who sometimes are working out of the most heartfelt concern, not just, um, to protect his assets. Uh, so yeah, but I, I, I enjoyed writing those objections because I think if you step back, you know, even a few inches from the Royal family, you go, this is the most ridiculous Disney cartoon in, in maybe two dimensions. And I'm talking about the real actual Royal family. You know, when you watch Megan and Harry and Oprah, they were, it was fascinating. And at first I told myself I would watch, you know, five minutes and then turn it off. But I was just addicted. And I thought they handled themselves beautifully. And you thought they are discussing things that kind of apply to the rest of our lives in terms of marriage and children and finding your place in the world. On the other hand, they have tiaras, you know, (laughs) they have constant security. They have things that the rest of us just do not particularly um, mess around with. So it's, uh, yeah, it was. It's just a, a very delicious world. Well, you have a wonderful line. You talk about Carter making a trip to Buckingham Palace, and you describe the entryway and the Great Hall and the, the grounds. And you write, stepping into a palace is like walking on the moon or the ocean floor. It takes not just getting used to, but a different sense of gravity. And I thought that was very beautifully put. 
Um, are there really 772 rooms in yes. Buckingham Palace? Really? Yep. No, I did. I did do a, a decent amount of research. I also have a few friends who are just put me to shame in terms of royalty addiction. They subscribe to all of those glossy European magazines like Hello, which follow, <laughs> you know, the royalty of countries where the royalty was deposed a century ago. But they know who the the Viscount of Sweden is. They know who should be on the throne of Greece. Um, so that I'd already had a little bit of an education there. But yeah, well, it's also, I think there's an enduring fascination with the rich. The, the very few times I've been on private planes have been the most sort of delirious uh, form of education because there's nothing better and there's nothing more shameful. And I was so aware that the cost of the fuel alone could send uh, an entire township to college. But on the other hand, you leave when you want to leave. Uh, there are snacks available throughout the, the aircraft. The seats are so much nicer. It's like being in someone's living room. There are staterooms. And it, you feel entirely evil, on the other hand. And also, I have the excuse of, oh, I was a guest. So do, please don't blame me for this capitalist obscenity. On the other hand, can I get out? Can I do it again? So it was uh, that kind of world, too, which is why I love having Carter as an interloper, as someone who, you know, didn't necessarily sign up for this, but also gets to wallow in it at certain points. You're fairly active on Twitter. And one of the things you do is post photos of the royals or often also people like Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump and write funny captions for them. Um, are you as obsessed with people like Jared and Ivanka as you are with the British royals? Well, certainly while Trump was in office. also. New Yorkers have a particular connection to the Trumps because we always despised them. There was all they were always just absolutely scorned and their sense of entitlement was particularly offensive because they seemed to imagine that they ruled New York and it was like no 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 talk to a real New Yorker and you'll find out your repu your true reputation. And when Ivanka and Jared were presenting themselves, you know, they weren't elected, but suddenly they became our ambassadors. And Ivanka was always nosing and shoving her way into summits where she had no business being there. And the, you know, ridiculously frozen grin. And Jared, I had remembered because he had made his way through the world of New York journalism. I don't know. You may have known many of these people as well when his family would buy him the New York Observer. And so I knew an editor who was the nicest man who ever lived and the most experienced and the most adept. And he had to deal with Jared on a day-to-day -day basis. And this was a guy who never spoke ill of anyone. And he had practically a breakdown. It was, he, he just, it was like dealing with a chimp on roller skates. So it was, um, so yeah, I, I was keyed into their, their exploits. And, you know, and when, when Ivanka would make her, her sort of five-second photo ops at food banks or wave to the adoring crowds, which weren't really there. It was, it was juicy stuff, but it was also scary because you thought they really, they really imagine they are the next American political dynasty. And it's been interesting since the election, the way they have all been dumped in Florida because they are so unwelcome in New York where they had lived all the entire family for many, many years but I think they knew that they would be, if any, and this is the nicest 
experience spat on. You know, they would be so thoroughly rejected. So suddenly Florida has become their only, it's like their Elba, it's their only refuge. Um, so yeah, they were, but, but while they were in power, uh, it felt very necessary to, uh, to target them. So uh, speaking of Trumpism, and I really hate to speak of it, but um, I do want to talk about Coastal Elites. You mentioned it a little bit ago. It's a film that you, uh, that you wrote. Uh, it's a series of monologues that started off as a, as a dramatic piece. It was going to be performed at the public theater. Is that right? Yes. Um, this is a really interesting movie. It's, uh, it became a movie because I guess it was supposed to go up during the pandemic and then you had to kind of recalibrate. Um, but uh, let's tell us a little bit about it and then let's kind of get into it, um, in, in, in some more detail. Cause I think it's fascinating. Well, it was sort of leading up to the election. I found myself in this perpetual state of rage and dread and everyone I knew shared that. I would get on the phone with friends and we'd say, we are not going to talk about Trump today. It's bad for our psyche. We can't do that all the time. And then two seconds later, we would be analyzing every word of the latest speech, the latest lie, the latest moment of corruption. And it just became this nonstop sort of background or foreground buzz everywhere I went, and particularly on the coast. And whether you and I, I also imagine that even the conservatives were experiencing a similar level of um, anxiety, and so I had to write about it. And the monologues from um, Coastal Elites pretty much erupted. They were I just didn't want to filter myself in any way. I wanted to reflect that sort of outpouring of concern and passion and rage. And yeah, they originally were going to be staged over about a week uh, at the public theater. And Jay Roach, our director, was going to film them for HBO. And that was about to happen just as the lockdown came into being. And I thought it was pretty much dead. But HBO said, what if there was a way? And we shot it all remotely with every healthcare protocol in place. And all the actors were scattered across the country. And Jay and I were on different coasts. And we were on every possible app. But it, the intimacy of shooting these great actors in close-up ended up feeling like exactly the right forum for this stuff, because it was about people demanding to be heard. And I don't always endorse everything they had to say, but I knew it was accurate. I knew these were the, uh, the flashpoints. And I just, I remember I did see a guy wearing a MAGA hat at a New York coffee shop. And the, the, the way my throat constricted and the, my sense of, okay, it's a good thing I don't believe in gun ownership because I'd be tempted to use it. You know, that it's, um, and I, I think people happily, there's been a far, the temperatures dropped since then, that once, once Biden and Harris won, there was a sense of a, a, at least a, a return to a bit of sanity and a built, bit of adult leadership. But when that was not necessarily a done deal, oh my God, everyone was living on the absolute ice pick edge of, of expectations. So that was what I wanted Coastal Elites to reflect. And there were people, once it was started airing, who said, oh my God, that is exactly what I'm going through. I agree with every word. And there were people who said, oh no, you don't understand. It's far more nuanced than that, um, that you're, you're caricaturing these people. And I thought, no, no, no. I bet if I listened to even one of the naysayers for 30 seconds, they would start to sound like these characters. 
because everyone was ranting then, whatever side of the divide you were on. And that was what I needed to write about. Yeah, I have to say, I thought it was really nuanced. That's our buzzword on this on this show. <laughs> it's our brand. Uh, but yeah, the opening monologue, the first piece is a monologue by Bette Midler, um, a really terrific performance. And she plays kind of a, a, a type that we think we know. She's a middle-aged woman, retired teacher. She lives on the Upper West Side. She reads the New York Times and listens to NPR and reads the New Yorker religiously. She kind of expresses her opinions via tote bag announcements. <laughs> That's a trope that never gets old. I, I was making fun of the NPR tote bag. The music is my bag bag, like ever since the 80s. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's never gone away. Um, uh, and so she's talking about sitting in a coffee shop and seeing a guy in a MAGA hat. And part of the reason that she's so incensed is because she feels intruded upon. He is sitting in a coffee shop in New York City in Manhattan, on the Upper West Side, in a MAGA hat. That's not just any place. And so she talks about her rage over this, and she just talks about her rage over what happened to Hillary and the way she relates so intensely to Hillary Clinton's experience as a woman and all the compromise and all the the injustice as she sees it. And, you know, I was watching that monologue, and I went through so many emotions. Like, at one moment, I would be like, ugh, you know, this this character is so reductive in her analysis. And I, you know, I, I, I see her point, but this also is the kind of person who drives me crazy. But then a minute later, she would be a lot more complicated. And then I don't want to give anything away, but at the end, so there are, there are how many monologues? Five? Are there? Yeah. So at the end, there's another character who's a, a nurse in a, in a hospital treating COVID patients. And she starts... The, the 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 Miriam you got you also have a lot of Miriams because there's a, there's an Aunt Miriam in playing the palace. Do you have a real Miriam in your life? Is your mother named Miriam or something? No, my mother was named Selma. <laughs> okay, which is, but yeah, but I do. Have, I realize I do have it's either a Miriam problem or a Miriam fetish. Well, my my grandmother's name was Miriam, but she was oh. not not Jewish and any anything but. Uh, just anyway. Uh, so anyway, Mir- Miriam, who's the Bette Midler character, she uh, comes up again in the last monologue. And we think uh, we think that her fate is going to be one way. And then it, it turns out to be something else. And her rage and her, quote unquote, derangement. Uh, and I know that that's Trump derangement syndrome is used der- derisively often, but it is a real thing, that ends up uh, really sabotaging her. And so I thought it was fascinating the way that this kind of possession and the way we've let rage take over our lives, you you give it breathing room and you give it, uh, you honor it in this film, but it also, it's not without its consequences. It's, you don't let us off the hook. And so I I just thought that was really, really interesting the way you kind of threaded that needle. Oh, thank you. Because yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's an absolute poison. And even people going through, including myself, realize that, that no one wants to live at that level of constant, you know, derision and fear. So it's, it is a form of derangement. On the other hand, it became absolutely necessary because of, of world events, but it was very dangerous. And I think it's um, the entire world, oddly, lately, 
even though there's there's a fringe on of every group, I think even the most conservative people have stepped back a bit from the battle, from that sense of every morning you wake up and put on your armor and check your newsfeed and, uh, you know, amp up your hatred. I think the, the country just became exhausted and tired and scared of living that way for four years. And that was one of the real, I think, evils of the Trump administration, that whatever you whatever you thought of him, my God, he divided us. And that is no longer the case. Even people who still insist, oh, he won the election, who are, or who will find many reasons to, to hate Joe Biden, there's been a, a, a lessening, a sense of no, everyone is no longer your enemy. But one thing that's happened is all that rage has been transferred onto culture war issues. Like instead of being outraged over what Trump said that day, because we're not hearing it because he's not on Twitter and he's not being covered by the media constantly, we've got these other, these kind of like, you know, subsidiary sources of outrage. Um, I'm curious, you know, how you kind of, uh, how, how you feel about the way people talk about the arts and who's allowed to say what and write what, you know, Issa Rae has a monologue and it has to do with, with race. Um, and as I, it's, it's really well done. It's fantastically written and her performance is amazing. But I was wondering, like, as a white man, how did you feel about writing that section? There's a school of thought now that says a white person has no business writing that piece. Yeah, no. And I absolutely questioned my authority in that sense. But on the other hand, I thought, okay, I do know rich people. And that can be um, almost stronger than any other identity. She's a she's a billionaire's daughter. Exactly. Is, that the character is, yes. And yes. from talking to Issa, who had an amazing amount of input and was so helpful and is an astonishing actress, I felt, okay, this, there, and, and also because she... I think with almost all of the pieces, the actors felt very uh, close to those characters. They felt they were, they agreed with them and that they were allowed to channel some of their own feelings through these, these monologues. Um, so I, I felt comfortable with that. And also because I thought, no, leaving out a, uh, any racial minority from this, this particular evening would be a far worse option. I thought, no, then you're just only hearing from, from white people. But also I thought that hearing, I thought, no, if I wrote only from a politically racial perspective, that would be unearned. But on the other hand, if this was someone, this was a New York heiress, and I've known more than my share, that's somebody I can understand, and that's a lens I can, I can use so yeah, it's but it is very tricky. I know there's this, you know the whole notion of cultural appropriation has is both often a genuine concern. Sometimes it's absurd, but it is something we're thinking about. I think that one of the things I've realized lately is that um, well, there are two things. One, which I've always I learned the hardest way. Sometimes people you completely disapprove of, people you think are moronic, can actually have good ideas. So that you, there is a point where you have to shut up and listen and you say, okay, everything else you're saying appalls me, but here you do have a point. Um, and also, I think that it's a facet of human nature where we all kind of wish that change would be easy. And it's not. 
Um, I remember there's something you wrote in the, in the problem with everything that I just adored, where you talked about your generation believing in toughness and how the more millennial group believes, I think, in fairness and that there's uh, the divide there. And I kept thinking, okay, now what the world needs is a certain sense of toughness regarding fairness that you thought, I thought, no, okay, you've got it. We all have to say, no, listen to the people who drive you crazy. Listen to the people who seem to be humorless and um, absurd at times and find what's valuable there. And that is not going to be easy. And sometimes you're going to have to choke on it. But because if you value toughness in that way that you do so eloquently, you kind of uh, can draw on that that sense of, okay, my initial knee-jerk instinct is to just say, oh, shut up, you idiot. On the other hand, you think, no, I'm going to pay attention to that idiot because there will be something valuable there. And that's, that's really tough. Can you think of, can you talk about any specific examples of people who you thought were moronic or you were rolling your eyes, but you had to admit that, that they were onto something? Well, I think it's, there are certain basic things and where I can be a cranky old person like anyone else when you're dealing with pronouns and new disc- and um, you know there there's been a current uh, argument over whether the word slaves is now racist and they should be called enslaved people. And I, once I followed the logic, I, I understood it. Um, and I realized that okay, the one rule I could make for myself was call people what they'd like to be called. It's not that hard. It's not going to, you know, I can roll my eyes all my all I like, but it really does not take anything away from me to listen to someone who says, no, I am a biromantic, asexual, um, coastal, you know, lesbo, whatever. You know, and I call coastal it, is a sexual identity now. Probably the strongest one. But yeah, but and I thought, there is a part of my brain that, of course, also as a writer, you think, oh, my God, what is this going to do to sentence structure? But it's um, I thought, nope, sort of like Paul, shut up. This is something if this matters so much to that other person and this is how they think of themselves, show them the respect of of including that. And of, and also it just, you know, if you need to use they instead of he, him or, or she, her, that is not going to kill you. Um, so yeah, I mean, those are the, the sort of microaggression level, but it's, um, yeah, it's just, there's also, I guess, a sense where you always hope that you're done learning, you're done experiencing where now you're sort of, you have your, your trove of wisdom for the rest of your life. And of course that's ridiculous. Um, and it also, I don't think is it really even to be desired. I think it's exciting to see what's going on in the culture at any point. And if you're going to be a writer, you certainly need to value curiosity above all else. Um, but it's something, and I'm, I need to gush back at you because one of the things I so cherish about your work is when I'm reading it and you make some eloquent, beautifully worded argument that I absolutely disagree with. If I wait about half a second, you start to argue with it yourself. <laughs> you are never... Doctrinaire. All, you immediately uh, see five other points of view and argue them with equal fervor. And that seems like also, of course, genuine adulthood, where you think, you know, that whole concept of holding more than one idea in your brain at the same time. 
but it's so admirable and so much more exciting to read. You know, I think that I will turn off to someone who is, who's lecturing me. And in your work, there's always a sense of constant exploration and frustration, you know, coupled with this brilliant writing. But it's really, it's also just delicious because you see it becomes almost physical, that sense of reading you wrestle with yourself. <laughs> it's like like whiplash. Well, I'm, yes. gl- I'm glad you experienced that in a positive way, but because I think it's hard for for people now. Like I, I, you know, many of my critics will say, well, she's, she's, you know, she's not making sense or she's not on one side or the other, or she's giving too much credence to the other side. I mean, for me, essay writing and just kind of thinking on the page has always been about self-interrogation. Like, I don't think you're really honest unless you are constantly questioning yourself. But that doesn't really play as well in today's in today's media culture. It's it's really hard to get people to have the attention span to kind of take all of that in, you know, you it, because they, they can get mad for one second and then they're not waiting until the next second, as you said, to to see w- what comes next. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that it wasn't lost on you. But I'm curious just to go back to this. I, you know, you're you're open to things changing. I agree with you that the pronouns, you know, we, we tend to make a bigger deal about those than we should, although there is something disconcerting about the they singular, but okay, grammar is always changing. But what about going back and relitigating culture that's been in place? Like, do you ever fear that someone's going to go back and read your old novels, go back to, to social disease uh, for starters or anything else and be like, oh my God, this is problematic. Like, we got to cancel this guy. Yes. No, that I think, and I, I certainly would absolutely argue against erasure, that sense of, no, you get rid of the Huckleberry Finns of the world or the last of the Mohicans, you don't read them again, you eliminate them. That seems foolish. But a sense of examination seems absolutely fine that you think, okay, no, I, it's something you would do even in an age without, you know, this extreme political correctness, that sense of, okay, how does this speak to us now? And I think that also sometimes the geek, the, those very rigid gatekeepers underestimate the audience. They underestimate the idea that no, anyone from any particular minority is so fragile and so fearful that they can't read and process something from another time period and not take it as a direct harm to themselves. That they say, ah, of, and usually I find that when when Black readers, when Asian readers, when gay readers come across something from an earlier age that is ridiculously offensive, they, it's not unexpected. They go, of course, that is how people wrote back then. That is what they, uh, that is how they felt in the most heartfelt manner. And it was appalling. And it, but it's, it is something to be acknowledged and dealt with rather than something to be trembled before. Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, when I go back and reread my stuff, which I try not to, I'm much more worried about, oh my God, am I just going to think, this is the worst writing ever. Oh my God, this should be canceled just for sheer lack of insight, <laughs> but rather than from, from political concerns. But I think that it's, uh, and also, of course, sometimes the more humorlessly PC people can be wildly entertaining, the degree of not getting it. But it's something I've always encountered with people without a sense of humor at any point in my career where you think, oh, wait, if you didn't think that was a joke, 
how do you get through the day? How do you cross the street? <laughs> you know, but there are people out there and it's really a form. Uh, it, it's a, it's almost its own disability because you see how they're, they're furrowing their foreheads oh, it, and really hobbling. Yeah. What, what did you mean by that? <laughs> and you just have to feel a kind, a certain kind of compassionate pity where you realize, oh my God, you are so comedy impaired. So it's, um, it's also why, you know, what, there are people who, um, when you watch some of the more extreme comics, you know, you watch Anthony Jeselnik, that, and you say, you realize, okay, that is a craft in itself. The people who are willing to, I mean, I always hate that, uh, you know, what's the, for the phrase that people use about a, um, uh, a opportunity, uh, a something opportunity offender, where I thought, oh, give it a rest. You know, you just want oh, the to get equal opportunity equal offender. Opportunity offender. Yeah. Exactly. It usually just means I want a free pass. But on the other hand, there are people who do it so well that you need to salute them also because there's nothing like a dirty laugh. There's also, and this is interesting, that sense that um, stuff we might have once said to our friends in person or over the phone is now often said online, and that's where people get into trouble. There is no private sphere anymore. There's no sense of, oh my God, this is something I can only tell you because that means I'm going to tell it to a million people. Um, and I think if people start to value their privacy a little more and realize, okay, sometimes I can laugh at something that would get me fired at work, but it doesn't necessarily make me the world's worst person. It's just, you know, oh my God comedy has its own freedom. Um, so, but I think there is, and this was something I thought of, and then I saw it was also in the recent Bo Burnham special. We're all now expected to have an opinion on everything. And sometimes I try to remember, you know, Paul, nobody cares what you think about this. You don't have to formulate your mission statement on every single issue. You can sit back, you can pay attention to other people's opinions or ignore it entirely. But the internet seems to demand this of us, that we all speak up. And I thought, oh God, that's a real recipe for for a certain kind of boredom and a nonstop fury. Yeah. And it's so flattening. I think yeah. that's I think you are homing in on something that's really essential, which is that as soon as people had the opportunity to share in a in a virtual space in a public way it completely changed the stakes like you know you would whether it was joking around with your friends you would you know you would go to a, a bar and sit around with some beers and you know have some laughs and some gallows humor whatever it was um and that would be satisfying that would be a satisfying evening you felt that you had shared you had laughed you had made sense of the world in a way that was healing now so much of that takes place on social media in front of everybody. And it's a completely different equation. And it's, you're going to be, you're going to censor yourself. If you're smart, you're going to, you know, you, you risk losing everything. Um, it's, it's very, very different. And I wonder if I'm not saying that nobody goes out with their friends and jokes around anymore, but you never know who's recording something. You never know who's going to write down what you said and not just tell it to somebody else, but, but post it somewhere. Um, and so that's one thing that happens. And another thing that happens, I, I think, if you have a little exchange with somebody on the street that's unpleasant or there's a misunderstanding, you used to just kind of go and complain about it to your friend and then you would move on. 
But now you might go and tweet about it and suddenly it becomes a microaggression that's a political event and it blows up completely out of proportion. The proportions have just changed. And I think that that's, um, I just consider it a real gift to have lived most of my life without that stuff, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, no, well, it's that sense of people who cherish their outrage. It's also, I don't know why I, I quite related to this, but it's when I've worked on, on theater productions where people have said, oh, what if we film the whole rehearsal process? What if we make a documentary of, of this entire production? And I look at them and think, are you out of your mind? The idea of recording every moment and every mistake and of making sure that no one gets to fail privately is absolutely obscene. You know, that's a good way to make people freeze and and not try anything new, not try something that's not going to work, but will be a step towards something uh, that just might. That if you, if you eliminate privacy, it's it's really crippling. Although actually, and I did just read something where it said we are, should avoid the word crippling because that also could be an insult to to the disabled community, which is something that I've actually then thought about. But of course, I just used the word anyway. But um, yeah, everything is much more fraught because I what you just said about that sense of proportion and that sense of everyone needing to earn a certain license to say whatever they have to say. Um, but on the other hand, I think if you really think historically, there's always been a, a sense of community censure of neighbors disapproving of of the the person across the fence. So we've never lived in a world of total security and, un, and understanding and privacy. It's just now. Also, we all choose to go online, and that should never be. Um, discounted, that you can always log off, you know, that it's, we're turned on by that uh, spotlight. And you got to reckon with that. You can't just blame the internet for everything. Have you ever been canceled or close to it? Have you gotten in trouble for anything? Um, Let me think. I mean, one thing you learn, especially in the theater, but also, as you know, in, in books or anywhere, anything that's reviewed, you've had the experience of being attacked and being what you what you would call misunderstood um, and of being told off in no uncertain terms. And you grow a much thicker skin. So in a way, I think even the most casual person online is experiencing what writers go through and actors and directors and everybody else go through all the time, often if they're lucky enough to have had uh, some work of theirs produced in the public sphere, so that I know what it's like to have someone say, this is the worst book play movie ever written, Paul Rednick should be put to death. Uh, although actually one of my favorite responses was for the, the, the most fabulous story ever told, when the Catholic League of Decency, which is really about three guys in a basement, um, <laughs> distributed postcards to to Catholics wherever they could find them, and they would fill them out. So they would all be identical, but they would all say that Jesus Christ is all loving and all forgiving, and Paul Rudnick is going to burn in hell. <laughs> and I thought, there's a contradiction there. Come on, work with me, people. At least don't put it that way. Um, so yeah, there certainly have been been attempts to uh to at the very least shut me up 
Well, Paul, I really, I just, I can't thank you enough for, for talking with me and for, for all these years of, of really just funny and, um, and, uh, meaningful and entertaining and thoughtful work. So, um, I I really appreciate it. And, uh, congratulations on the novel. Have you ever met a Royal? Do you, do you have any relationships with uh, members of the Royal family that we should know about? has left me deeply disgruntled. I keep waiting for some sort of call or text from Meghan and Harry. My dream is, to, of course, to see a copy of playing The Palace sticking out of their tote bags, but it so far has not happened. I'm waiting. I hope this book will earn me a title of some kind. Okay. And I hope it's sticking out of an NPR tote bag oh, while we're at absolutely. it. absolutely. Okay. Paul, thank you so much. Oh, thank you again for having me. That was my interview with Paul Rudnick. Paul is a novelist, playwright, essayist, and screenwriter. His Obie Award-winning plays have been produced both on and off Broadway and around the world and include I Hate Hamlet, Jeffrey, The Most Fabulous Story Ever Told, Valhalla, Regrets Only, and The New Century. His screenplays include Adam's Family Values, In and Out, and Sister Act, and his many books include Social Disease, I'll Take It, and most recently, Playing the Palace. We didn't talk about this, but Paul was also the secret force behind the legendary film reviews of Libby Waxman Gellner in Premiere Magazine. You can read all about this and more on his website, paulrudnick.com. You've been listening to the Unspeakable Podcast. If you like this show, please consider supporting it on its Patreon page, patreon.com slash the unspeakable. I do this show all by myself and every contribution helps. And it's not for nothing. If you sign up at the $10 a month level or higher, you get $10 off your first purchase of unspeakable podcast, official nuanced AF merchandise. There are hats, shirts, mugs, thermoses, stickers, magnets. Those are ideal. If you're a little commitment phobic about stickers which I certainly am. You can find all of this in the Nuance store on the show's website, theunspeakablepodcast.com. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now for amazing savings. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? The sleepless nights, the constant worry, and the feelings of isolation. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know you're not alone. Addiction destroys families. But if you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your loved one can begin to recover, and so can your whole family. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with compassion and dignity by expert addiction professionals while recovering in a world-class facility. Family support services will give you knowledge, connection, and community so that you can begin to heal and recover as well. 
Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. Recovery Centers of America accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services at no cost. Patients are admitted 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.